forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, director, and natural brunette. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and uh, bisexual. Okay. <laughs> I I almost went with just like a person because I'm <laughs> run out of things. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I'm also a natural brunette, but um, don't tell anyone. Yeah, nobody nobody's on to you with those roots. Oh! <laughs> Bitchy. <laughs> I like to come Melissa here just to losing get... it. I, yeah. I only say things to get Melissa to laugh. I like to come here just to be read to filth, I guess. Oh my god. Okay. No, wait. I can't see any roots. I was just goofing. Yes, you can. Don't lie to me. Okay. Speaking of speaking of <laughs> Melissa's dying right now. Wow. Apparently Melissa's um love language is be mean to Gabby. <laughs> I think Melissa. It's not the target. It's just she respects a good burn. Mm-hmm. Like any good burn is great. Yeah, <laughs> a roast. <laughs> Melissa is our producer, by the way, if it's your first time here. Uh, so, okay. So do we want to um, go into this magnificent email that you received? Yes. So as we all know, I read the emails and sometimes, oh man, they just make my day. Uh, this one's not a question. Not a question. Just some statements. It says, Dear Allison, since Gabby doesn't read these. Question. I guess there is a question. Would you date Pete Davidson? (laughs) Longer question. I'm a huge fan and love JBU, the channel and podcast and everything. I'm a little drunk and high, but I just had a dream in which you were getting married happily to Pete Davidson. I got obsessed with the idea and have checked that he is only five years younger than you. I also figure that you have mutual friends. Gabby knows Joel Kim Booster, who knows Patty Harrison, who knows A.D. Bryant, who knows Pete. (laughs) So I guess if you ever marry Pete, I'll know I am an oracle. I love you. You are an inspiration. And I often think, what would Allison do? I'm sorry if this email was stupid or hurtful. I meant no (laughs) harm. Please find attached Priyanka and Nick's wedding photo. I've pasted Pete in your head on top of theirs. (laughs) So that you get the full impact of what I saw. Anyway, <laughs> off the top of my head, Pete and you have the following similarities. Oh One, my God. New Yorkers. Two, mental health. Three, broken engagements. <laughs> Four, comedy. Five, weed. Six, hi- Allison's Hypotheticals Universe. And Pete is in the DCEU. I guess a second part of my overall question is why am I obsessing over celebrities' lives and shipping IRL? That's not good for me. Anyway, I love you and Gabby and Pete and Sugar, Beans, Mal, Drew, Ruth, Ken, Jocelyn, Karen, Cheyenne, and Mark. Bye-bye, Michelle. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, I love that she included Mal and Drew. Wow. Okay. Wow. Lots to unpack here. Um, I wholeheartedly agree. I think this is brilliant. I'm not famous enough for Pete Davidson. He only goes for really famous ladies and or models. I have to say that one, that maybe the only silver lining of being abandoned by my fiance is that now potentially I can marry Nathan Fielder. <gasps> okay. 
Okay. So Nathan Fielder, if you're out there um, and you're listening to this, you are Allison's soulmate. Yeah. But like, I have a question. Like, is it, is it healthy to like date somebody that you think is a genius? No, I don't think so. Right? No. I mean, I, I'm very against any, any famous man reaching out to any famous man, I think is a huge mistake. I think any famous man who pops into your DMs and tries to tell you you're special. That's well, a I've red never, flag. I've literally never had that happen. Don't waste. I'm going to say don't waste a year on that person. Probably not a good idea. You were um, so young, though. I was young. But and that's part of the pre- listen. Listen here, young women of oh, the boy. Internet. Oh boy. If some famous older man pops into your DMs trying to get with you, you can you can fuck him, but do not start dating that person, dating quote unquote, because let me tell you, it's not good. They're full of shit. They're all full of shit. Yeah, I'm not I I I just think it's a problem when you start off I, idealizing somebody in a relationship. Not the Abs- healthiest. Yeah. Absolutely. But that said, Nathan Fielder, if you're interested, <laughs> I'm very much willing to change for you. Oh, my God. Anyway, this is just between us, a variety show with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. What famous woman would I date? Who do you think I'd be good with? You know, I, don't, I, love? I don't think I think you prefer being the more well-known one in your relationship. Interesting. I, I I love Kiki Palmer, and I okay. wish that she would date me. She's queer. Did you know that? No. And uh, she posted something about, like, having trouble with her, like, her skin and having acne, and I found it very relatable and vulnerable. So, Kiki Palmer, if you're out there. And we know she's out there. I, I, I really, <laughs> I feel like um, you're really genuine, and I love that about you. Okay. <laughs> well, we have got a great episode for you guys this week. We're going to be asking Dr. Devin Price some tough questions about their work called Laziness Doesn't Exist, which is a book of theirs that I read that is out soon, and it's very good. And later, we'll be discussing found family. When does a friend become family? Beautiful. But first, hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous, Ireland. Anonymous says, TLDR, I don't want to self-diagnose as OCD and use that to explain to family and friends why situations that to them are no big deal are distressing to me. How can I explain why it's distressing when my reasoning, germs, contamination, dirtiness, sound bonkers to everyone else? Hi, Allison and Gabby and Sugar and Beans. (laughs) I'm from Ireland, and this is really an international question. When Allison talks about her OCD and fear of contamination, I feel seen. I have things that make me anxious and that get worse when I'm anxious, but I don't think I could get a diagnosis for OCD because I don't think these things impact my life enough. I can work in the garden. I can shovel poop out of a horse's stable. I can clean a bathroom, but kitchens, if there is food that isn't cleaned up immediately, then there are germs and it freaks me out to touch it and I want to scrub my hands. Cleaning a kitchen is hard for me unless it is my own mess and I clean it ASAP before the germs multiply. If I touch anything in the kitchen, even if it is spotless, I want to wash my hands afterwards. My sister and I wash our white bed sheets together. 
Every so often, my sister will decide she needs to wash her chef whites with the bed sheets. Of course, that can't happen. They stink of the kitchen where she works. They are dirty. I don't want my sheets to be contaminated by them. But my sister acts like I'm making a mountain out of a mohill by not wanting to wash my sheets with her. I would rather hand wash them in the bath. I like my bed clothes and sheets to be untainted. I will not nor allow my boyfriend to wear everyday clothes in the bed, and I don't wear pajamas outside of my bedroom if I can help it. My whole family acts like I am being completely irrational by not wanting to wash my sheets with her chef whites, and it's like they're offended that I won't. Of course, this is just one example of this sort of thing. I have these issues with friends and family every so often. I can't really explain my reasoning. Do you have any advice for how I can explain why these situations are distressing to me when my reasoning sounds crazy to other people? Also, Just Between Us has taught me so much over the years, so thank you. Happy holidays to you and the team and your families. Aww. So nice. Oh my God. Okay, so you have a lot to say about this. (laughs) Yeah, you could see me gearing up. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so first to clarify something about OCD and contamination of CD in particular. Just because you can do certain things does not mean that you then don't have OCD. So there's going to, like, again, I am in no way diagnosing you that would be completely unethical and ridiculous. I, I, I'm not a licensed therapist. This is a, an email, obviously. But I'm just saying, in, in general, like there's a lot of things that I'm able to do as well. Like I'm able to pick up my sugar's poop. When sugar's poop gets stuck in sugar's butt, I can pull the poop out of her butt. When I know that I'm going to be dirty, I'm able to do a lot more. Um, I fluctuate in what I can and cannot do depending on my anxiety level and my mental health state. So it's, it's really not about like, oh, well, if I could do this, then I don't have this. Um, it's really more about are there things that cause you such intense discomfort that you have, com- so you have the obsession about it and you have the compulsion about it. So the obsession, again, not diagnosing, but just saying, so the obsession is oh my God, I do not want the kitchen to be filled with germs. I cannot have the kitchen filled with germs. And then the compulsion is I have that. That means I must clean it immediately. Typical OCD, you have the obsessions and the compulsions. And it took me a long time to realize that my compulsions are just simply my cleaning behaviors. This is one of those things, right? Where it's like, does the diagnosis matter? Because your feelings are valid either way. Mm -hmm. And the issue here is that I'm guessing that your family and potentially friends are just maybe not that fluent in mental health issues. Um, And especially if it sounds like maybe you have never been to therapy, obviously you have never received a diagnosis. Um, To them, it is just like a personality quirk, potentially. Um, And so I completely understand like why this would be so incredibly frustrating for you. And one of the things that I'm going to have to say is that this is an issue that is on them Mm -hmm. where yes it sucks that you have these contamination fears and I would not wish these fears on anybody um I you know I'm sure that it is really annoying that like you you don't want to wear your pajamas outside of your bedroom because wouldn't it be nice if you could just go watch a movie on a Saturday morning in your pajamas and then come back and you know like things like this really do limit your life and they do interfere with Um, your daily functioning. And I can see why you're like, well, I don't have it because it's not interfering with my daily functioning that much. Um, But it is, it is in that like you're washing your sheets in the bathtub instead of using Mm -hmm. the washer, you know? So first step is, this is their problem. (laughs) 
This is their inability to just accept that this is something that you struggle with. That's on them. And the fact that you have these thoughts are actually incredibly common. Many people have OCD. Many people have diagnosable OCD. And many people have OCD tendencies. So this is like, you're not strange or weird at all that you have these things. It's really now, okay, how do we deal with this relationship with you and your family moving forward? I think it would be worth doing some psychoeducation on your end about OCD and contamination OCD in particular. I don't think that you need a formal diagnosis from a therapist in order to say, you know what, guys, I, I know that these things that I have have like been causing kind of conflict in our family and that like it is, you know, an issue. And I, I personally, honestly, I feel a little attacked by you guys about it. So I sort of looked into it. And honestly, it really, it really feels to me like it's in this category of like potentially some OCD tendencies and you know, I would love it if you could read a little bit about this too. I would Mm -hmm. love it if like you would actually look into this so that you can see that this isn't just a personality quirk of mine and that a lot of people struggle with this stuff. And that I'm hoping that in, in by maybe learning a little bit more about it, it won't seem as foreign to you. It won't seem as silly to you. And then maybe you can actually respect my boundaries more. That's the thing with family is that like, they're so used to speaking to you a certain way that it's mm-hmm. hard to change the boundary or the way that they view you. And it sucks because you would think, especially with people that love you, that if you just say, hey, I'm suffering, mm-hmm. that would be enough for them to be like, okay, I'm, you know. But I don't, but who, who's to say that they've had used that term? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that there is something about really being specific with the language that you're using to describe what you're going through. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think if you just say, oh, that's gross mm-hmm. or, you know, that's disgusting. I don't, you know, but I think if you wor- use words like that is distressing to me. Yeah. I don't know why, but doing that really makes me feel distressed. It makes me feel unsafe. It mm-hmm. rattles me. It causes me anxiety. It is it is unnerving to me. Mm-hmm. And again, I recognize that that is not how you would react to that situation. But I'm telling you my truth. And my truth is, is that that simple behavior is causing me extreme distress. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand. I think like it's hard not to feel a little defensive if you're on the receiving end of it. Like I live with uh, my partner and, and our friend Drew And the way that I was doing things is maybe a little bit messier than in some capacities than either of them would prefer. It did hurt my feelings. And I have to like work through um, sometimes like the the annoyance or like the things I want to do are like more convenient or more immediate. And then like if I don't do it right, quote unquote, right. I do feel like a little offended. Like it did take me some time of, you know, sometimes I'll be like, oh, excuse me. Like I've just existed for 32 years doing it wrong, I guess, or whatever. And like, so I understand like, or, or feeling like the other person thinks that you're um, gross. So I don't know how you. But that's what it is. It's acknowledging that I understand that for you, this is not a big deal. I would acknowledge that even objectively, it is not a big deal. But for whatever reason, the way that I am wired, Mm -hmm. this is distressing to me. It's never going to be perfect. I mean, my parents have been dealing with my OCD since I was four years old. And in a lot of ways, they're great. Like most ways, they're great, you know, but like my dad will still like come put the mail on like 
my my bench in my bedroom and I have to be like don't do that yeah. like, but then at the same time my mom will be like okay where can I put these clothes and I'll be like wherever and she's like okay well I don't want to put them you know so like sometimes they're even thinking more than I'm thinking about something to be cognizant of it which is like yeah. so nice but then like the other day we like washed sugars like collar and um jacket and whatever but then I'd seen that my mom hadn't I'd never done this before, but because she washed it, she took like the um, the phone number part, like the metal piece of the collar off of the collar. Mm-hmm. And then she was going to put it back on. And I was like, oh, well, did you wipe that down first? Because to me, it's like, well, we cleaned the collar, but that's a part of the collar that we mm-hmm. also have to clean. And for whatever reason, because she was like in a rush or she was already in an anxious mood, she sort of like snapped at me about it. Mm-hmm. And then she like did it, but like, you know, and so it's a give and take, right? So like, I know, so she snapped at me, but I was like, I get it. I get that yeah. was annoying what I just asked and that like she was already in a bad mood and I probably yeah. should have just been the one to clean it. You know, so there's always going to be like, it's not yeah. going to be like smooth sailing. Even if like they do come around to it, there's still going to, I'm sure there will still be some pushback and I'm sure that there will be times of, of washing the sheets that go easier than other times because you're yeah. also dealing with, with their energy and their current mood and all of that but I know I I just have to work I had to work so hard not to take it personally because I get it I get being like you know I I I get being like like sad that someone views you as contaminated or gross it feels sad to me that's so interesting (laughs) because I never really think about that it's hurt it's it's hurt my feelings a little like because I well I I thought like there's been times where I've been like Allison thinks I'm disgusting it made me sad because it's hard when someone's like don't touch me yeah like because then you start to wonder like what's wrong with me am I gross am I less than am I subpar and then it's like you think like am I doing am I doing things wrong like am I am I um, but were are they judging? To I, see you know what it through is? The lens that I had a mental illness and that it and that it wasn't about you. Eventually, but it also like I think you have to frame it as like you're not. I'm not doing it wrong, and no. I'm not doing it. I, it's just different. I'm not doing it in a way that is like I'm gross or wrong or it just it's you know what it is. It's feeling judged. It's feeling like mm. the OCD person mm-hmm. thinks that they're better and cleaner than you and then you're being judged so I don't know I mean that's just my like I'm giving you like the no it's sister's perspective that, yeah that's probably where they're coming from so it's probably a def- it's a defensiveness right mm-hmm. being called out on something and then and then instead of just recognizing oh this isn't about me let me accommodate maybe, this person yeah it's, it's feeling attacked maybe just being like I I'm not judging you I'm just, I, this is just the way I would do things. They're just different. There's no moral value to who, nobody's doing it better. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? This is just what I have to do to feel comfortable. Yeah. It has nothing to do with you. I love you. I don't think you're gross, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, maybe pack, put in some, some reassurance with it. And I think like it should go both ways. I don't want to just be like, I'm talking to you as your family. Cause I'm sure you hear from your family enough, but I'm just saying like, um, I think they should extend the same courtesy to you too. Being what and what, what do you mean? Being open, saying there's no moral judgment, being like, mm-hmm. does it make you prissy or uptight? You know what I mean? Like, just mm-hmm. like make, taking the actions away from like the emotions. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe like it, it would be helpful to say, I understand why when I say these things, 
you guys don't like it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm really not saying it to attack you or to demean you or to suggest that your way is worse. I'm just right. saying from my point of view and for whatever way that my brain is wired, mm-hmm. these things are triggering for me. And I would really appreciate it if you would let me do it in the ways that I find comfortable. Yeah. It's hard too, because we've been working on this with Mal, where like, they'll be like, can you put the dishes away? And I'll be like, yeah. And I put them away. And then Mal will go back and redo it. But see, in my opinion, then Mal should just do the dishes. I know. Like with the laundry. And obviously my relationship blew up in flames. But like, you know, I'm very strict about like the cleanliness of my laundry. So I just did all the laundry for both of us because... But how do you not have resentment, you know? I didn't have any resentment. I was like, I do the laundry. Who cares? I was doing my own laundry before. I didn't learn how to do it right the first 20 times. So now I'm going to learn how to do it correctly. Or or my partner will do it more and more and more. And once they do it more and more and more, they'll learn on their own and they'll do it better. You have to let them do it wrong first. And you you can't micromanage and you can't just like, you know. But there's something like, but that's just the thing, right? So if you are like, I have to wash my sheets without this, then it's not asking your sister to then wash your sheets the way you want. You exactly. know, like sometimes you yeah. have to do a little bit more because you got to take care of yourself. So I, I don't know. I think I think the psychoeducation, both for yourself and for your family, coming from it as this is causing me distress mm-hmm. versus you're disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also explaining that you understand that it fe- that like it feels like you're attacking them, but it's really not about that. It's really just about your personal preference, the way you are wired and that you hope that they can can be more understanding. But I would not get hung up on on having the diagnosis or yeah. not having the diagnosis. What matters is like your day-to-day life and happiness. And so mm-hmm. um, you got to do what's right for you. And, and as an OCD sufferer, I often feel like, well, I don't even have OCD bad enough to say that I have OCD. So <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Ooh, which is kind of what it's kind of part of OCD, isn't it? But, you know, so who knows? Don't worry about taking up that space or feeling like you mm-hmm. don't need to be, you know, like just do what you need to do and explain it in whatever way you need to explain it so that that uh, things are less distressing for you. But also, you know, this might be something worth working on. This might mm-hmm. be a reason to go to therapy, to work through this. Obviously, the goal with OCD is not to just completely accommodate your life so that you never have any distress. Mm-hmm. It's to learn how to deal with the distress. It's to learn how to get rid of the ones that are really interfering with your life. It's exposure mm-hmm. therapy. It's work. You know, So it's a balance. You could maybe even say, while I'm working through this, could you be a little more accommodating to me? But I'm also going to go to therapy so that potentially I could not feel this way anymore. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So it's a mm-hmm. little give and take there. That was good, Allison. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I also really appreciate your perspective because, yeah, I mean, I don't think enough about how, how it might be upsetting to other people to hear that. Thank you. And I'm, um, I'm, I'm sorry that I made you feel that way. No, it's okay. It's it is I, I it is mental illness, I know. But I also I think I just have a chip on my shoulder about being like a gr- like I don't know, maybe someone when I was in like, you know, elementary school, someone said that I was gross and I just like now that's like a thing for me. I don't think I've done this recently, but I can I obviously we have not even seen each other in real life in almost a year. I think, you know, I did not ha- handle my business that well in the past and I apologize. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry Um, that I contaminated everything all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
if you want to submit your international question and cause us to really hash it out, uh, you can submit it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about social psychology with Dr. Devin Price. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. Our guest this week is Dr. Devin Price, a social psychologist, writer, activist, and professor at Loyola University of Chicago School of Continuing and Professional Studies. Uh, Price's work has appeared in numerous publications, such as the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Slate, Psychology Today, The Rumpus, NPR, and Huffington Post, and has been featured on the front page of Medium numerous times. Uh, But mostly, we want to talk about uh, your book, Laziness Does Not Exist, which is just a perfect title. Uh, (laughs) So, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I like to start off a little basic. Can you explain what a social psychologist is? Oh, yeah. That's a great question because sometimes people think I'm like a therapist because that's the only kind of psychologist like most people know about. So a social psychologist is all about studying this social environment or culture and how that kind of influences a person's behavior. And really that kind of stuff, like the context a person is in, explains their behavior so much more nine times out of 10 than what personality do they have on a personality test? What mental illness do they have or not have? Like those very like individual traits. And so context is sort of king, right? With everything that, that you talk about, because obviously the premise of, of your book is also the title of your book, which is laziness does not exist. And so can we sort of like touch on why, why you think that is true and, and what has led you to believe that? Yeah. Um, so I, for a long time, I teach, I still currently teach working adult students, but I've always taught, um, working adult students at a variety of different places. I used to teach, um, as an adjunct before settling here. And I would see over and over again, how these students who were juggling a full-time job, they probably had had trouble with college. Most of them in the past, they tried it on the kind of conventional timeline and then something happened that got in the way. Mm -hmm. Um, they were like, taking care of like elderly parents. They're like doing all of these things while trying to take a full course load. And then if something got in the way or they missed an assignment, they would be so apologetic to me that, you know, they, they really wanted me to make sure that I didn't think they were lazy. And I would sometimes hear colleagues at different colleges talk about like, oh yeah, these students are just lazy. You can't really trust them, blah, blah, blah. And it just really made me start thinking about how the people who work the hardest or are overcoming the most in terms of just barriers and like structural Mm -hmm. problems are somehow also the people that get described as lazy the most often. Um, So that kind of gave me the idea that started out as an essay and then became this book, which is that... um, there, there is no such thing as a person choosing to fail or disappoint. If a person's actions don't make sense to you, it's because you're missing a part of the context around them. Yeah. And, and what really resonated with me is um, specifically talking about the unhoused population and how we have so much stigma against them and so much blame towards them about why they're in that situation. You touched on this in, in the article and I'm sure in the book as well, but like I had a, uh, one of my teachers in my um, clinical psychology program, she put it really well where she was like, you know, it's hard enough to, and this is similar, exactly what you said. It's hard enough to just be a housed person and get through life completely sober, but Mm -hmm. living on the street, dealing with weather conditions, uh, people 
attacking you, like just like the hardship of like living on the street, like it makes sense that of course these people are, you know, going to like need to maybe drink or smoke or, you know, do some drugs like, and, but there's so much blame on that. Right. And so you sort of talked about how we can like refocus, we can reframe why that is happening. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, who among us makes like ideal choices all of the time? Mm -hmm. Like, even if you have like a relatively relative to others, like comfortable life, you still are going to sometimes spend money in ways other people might not approve of or use substances or whatever it is. But then when you're living on the street, it's really painful and cold to sleep on the ground. Mm -hmm. It's often unsafe. You're having to haul all of your possessions around. You have like all these meetings with caseworkers just to get any little bit of benefits that you do get in whatever country you're in. And it's so much work actually Mm -hmm. to be homeless. Um, And in the book, I do talk about a friend who um, wrote this book, Memoirs of a Homeless Bookstore Owner about their experience that they were like living out of Winnebago, homeschooling their kids and running a business at the same time while dealing with all this stuff. And that's really not that abnormal. And yet if people found out that they were homeless, they would be called, you know, lazy, a drain on society, all this stuff. Right. And there's such a fear of like, well, if I give them $5 then they'll buy a beer, but it's like, let Who them cares? have a beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that that idea of uh, how much work it is to get social services and like how much, you know, if you, why don't you just go to a shelter? We're at a shelter. They might not let you keep your stuff. You're watched. You have to answer all these questions. Like, I don't think housed people have any idea. And so I, I really liked, I, I read through your book on NetGalley because I'm, I'm so special. Um, and I, one thing that I think is probably very relevant right now, and you do touch on COVID in your book, is um, like the capitalist idea of like the side hustle or like if you're not working or if you're not doing something like you're you're somehow like deficient or like even morally deficient. And I know like during COVID, there's been some talk of like, look, if you're getting through the day, amazing. But then on the flip side, there's also these like articles sort of lauding people for like how they've thrived. Like how damaging is that myth? I think it really erodes how we think about ourselves, how we think about other people. I think it like erodes like how we, how people support and think about social welfare programs. Like you were just saying, like one of the reasons that it is so hard to navigate social services and get benefits um, in general is because of the desire to like make sure no evil, lazy fakers are taking advantage of the system. Mm -hmm. And we just see that just like amplified and just dialed up to a whole new level under COVID times where even people who do have like a job and they're working from home, like all of these employers started using key logging software and screen monitoring software to make sure that their employees were staying productive enough during the pandemic. Like, like there was a huge, like just like uh, jump in the popularity of those, of those programs in March and April. Uh, even though when we look at actual productivity data, people's productivity did end up going out, up throughout the pandemic because because of this pressure and also because like you don't have a commute and you just have more time. And some mm-hmm. people do like like me have a workaholism problem where that's how you try to distract yourself from these things. Right. Um, so so, yeah, it's a it's a really pervasive problem. I think it is related to why it's controversial here in the U.S. to give people more money to stay home. Mm-hmm. Even though we know, like, who cares if that would make people lazy to pay them <laughs> to stay home? Like, even if that were a thing, which we know it's not, why can't we just treat people with more compassion and mm-hmm. prioritize that over moralizing everything? 
Well, it's the idea that like you have to be a productive member of society or and like that we judge that. I mean, it's been so interesting for me because I've more and more like on Instagram, there's this account called the Nat Ministry. I mean, just for our listeners who are like having probably like what I would have had, which was like a very jarred uh, reaction to this idea. Like, can you talk about like, you're like, you're still a person, <laughs> like, you know, like the almost, I mean, I guess I'm asking you the premise of the book, but you know what I mean? Like, what, why is this okay? Why is it okay to kind of, um, do nothing, put, do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, it, it's, it's so like the very fact that we have that question just kind of tells us how like screwed up our sense of who a person is and how we determine a person's value really mm-hmm. is. Most of us for the vast majority of our lives, we need other people in order to survive. That mm-hmm. is the human condition. When we get older, we need other people to take care of us. When we're minors, we need people to take care of us. And even those of us who do work and uh, are productive on kind of a level that society might approve of, we are getting so much support from partners who help clean up after us and take care of us and put up, put the emotional fallout of when we're stressed. Family and friends who are kind of there and supporting us. People who we are learning ideas from. Like I wouldn't have been able to write the book that I'm writing without you know students and friends who were struggling. So we have it so deeply ingrained in us that we are supposed to be these really strong, driven individuals. And even the people who are supposedly doing that, it's a myth. We're not really doing that. We're so reliant on other people. So if we could just get comfortable with how much we are benefiting from other people and Mm -hmm. how much we're part of like a tapestry of humanity, I think then we could also be a little bit less uh, paranoid and workaholic ourselves and kind of relax into that and realize, oh my God, I have worth even if I'm not producing anything. And then also that frees us up to have gratitude, to be compassionate and giving with other people. Like there's so much more good I could be putting into the world if I work you know, pretty much the minimum that I can get away with at work and then spend the time that I have freed up, you know, being loving to other people Mm -hmm. or or whatever it is, you know. Nurturing your relationships. But how can you monetize being loving? (laughs) That's what we need to know. (laughs) Yeah, and that's like the only way to like justify doing something. Right. Yeah. And I find myself even when I'm like, I've gotten pretty good at not feeling like I have to be working all the time. But then I'm like, well, I, it's good that I'm not working because not working is good for my mental health. So then it is still good for me. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I still have to like figure out a way to justify it. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a little bit on the, at the end of the book about like looking in your brain to make sure that you're not just doing self-care as another thing to put on your schedule because it will make you more productive in the long run. Mm. Because I think that's usually how we wind up talking about it, that that's Mm -hmm. why you have to do it because you'll be a better worker in the long run. And it's like, no, if you're, if that's your reasoning, then you're still defining your worth by how much you can do. And someday you're not going to be able to do as much as you're doing now. That's just like a natural course of human life. And that's actually not, it sounds so scary to us, but it's actually not like our bodies slow down because it preserves energy and it Mm -hmm. extends our lifespan, you know, like, and it, and when our energy runs down, it forces us to really think about what our priorities are. Like, that's Mm -hmm. actually a beautiful thing. If we stop being so terrified of it, which to be honest, I'm still absolutely terrified of it. But (laughs) I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. Like you talk about in the book, you know, the little anecdote of Lin-Manuel Miranda coming up with the idea for Hamilton while on vacation. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, but it's also this catch 22 where you have to actually be resting 
<laughs> before maybe a brilliant idea will come to you. But if you go into the rest thinking a brilliant idea will come to you, like, forget it. It's so stressful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes like the big realization is, oh, I'm resting. I'm tired. I'm like accessing what my actual values are. I need to quit this job that I'm doing or find Mm -hmm. a way that I can escape it because it's not as easy as just quitting it for most of us. Um, Or I need to really cut some people out of my life that demand a ton of my time. Like sometimes that aha moment is, you know, writing Hamilton. And sometimes it's going, you know what? I need to quit doing some things that I'm doing that I'm the only reason I'm doing is them them is because society says I should be doing them basically. Can we talk a little bit about cro- procrastination and how there's like a lot of moral judgment about procrastination, but why you think it actually exists? Yeah. So procrastination, there's a couple of ways we can divide, divide up why someone procrastinates or why mm-hmm. somebody does something that we call procrastination. The first one is just putting off doing something because you don't care about it, which if you really think about that, that's just a rational calculus. Like that's not <laughs> laziness. That's not a moral failing. Right. I might disagree with the other person about them saying I don't want to, I don't care about, you know, updating my, you know, car title. It doesn't matter to me. I might say, oh, that actually does kind of matter. But like they're from where they're sitting, it's rational. It's not the right. lazy. I might try to persuade them, but you know, whatever it's, it, they're living it lined up with their values. Another big cause of procrastination when somebody puts off doing a task that they do want to do and they really care about doing well is perfectionism or mm-hmm. just having a really, really harsh inner critic where you can think about what the end goal is, but you know, whatever little sentence you put on the page is not the final paper and it doesn't live up to what you have in your mind. So you just are paralyzed with kind of self-doubt. And that can get into a really self-defeating loop where a person finds the anxiety of the perfectionism so off-putting that then they have to distract from that to like regulate their emotions. Mm -hmm. So then they have that. So then they're playing a video game or cleaning the house. So they're not thinking about the paper and it kind of becomes a downward spiral. So that's a big source of procrastination. And then the other really big source of it is not knowing how to begin. How do you take this big thing and divide it up into small, accomplishable tasks and chip away at it every day, which we're still really in our education system, not very good at actually teaching people how to do. And and what do you recommend for someone who struggles with procrastination and ends up kind of beating themselves up about it all the time? Yeah. Um, so a lot of, when it comes to procrastination, I talk a lot about the kind of academic examples in that part of the book, because I think that's just so classic, like putting off a paper because Mm -hmm. you don't know how to start. I think there, you have to really do some work to retrain your brain, to let yourself make something that sucks at first and Mm -hmm. be, or you think it sucks at first and be comfortable with making progress is better than being, than it being perfect because perfect is not going to happen and setting aside a really limited amount of time per day to ch- to chip away at it. Um, there's this mm-hmm. book by a psychologist, Paul Sylvia, called How to Write a Lot um, that I often suggest to, to people who are procrastinating with any academic kind of work that it's like set aside maybe one hour per day to work on the thing, do your messy job. It doesn't have to be perfect during that hour and then walk away so that you stop associating these big tasks with like all-nighters mm-hmm. torturing yourself because if the only time you ever do something is in this really painful, stressful situation of pulling an all-nighter, mm-hmm. that trains your brain to hate it and fear it even more. Kind of along the same lines, there's a part in the book that I really liked that was about like how to take in information in like a better way, how to read stuff, like how to, instead of just cramming, like how to actually like retain information. So you're, I guess, like not not working yourself to the bone about it. Can you talk about like some of the ways people can do that? 
Yeah. So we consume way more information than any other humans in recent history. We consume in like a week an amount of information that most people in even like the 80s would not have gotten in months. And a lot of it is useless information or redundant information. Uh, people sharing the same things over and over again on social media. So to really like break out of that and actually be able to make sense of the stuff that you're reading and to be able to just critically analyze it or even like remember it, you really have to cut back and slow down, which is really hard. Um, so I have some exercises in the book for just active reading. So it's it, some of it is stuff that you might have even learned as a kid when they're kind of teaching you how to read, but we really forget to do this stuff of, you know, take note of something that you don't understand. And even if you have to physically write down kind of questions uh, to kind of make sure that you're actively engaging with the reading, pausing after a paragraph or two to really digest and say, okay, does this science article line up with things that I've heard before? Or is it confusing um, in light of other things that I've heard about, let's say the COVID vaccine, for example, and kind of predicting, okay, what's the reading going to do next? And then following along and seeing, okay, am I, am I getting answers for my questions? Are there things I still don't know? And, um, and not just an immediately having that knee-jerk reaction of, I'm going to leave a comment or I'm going to share or I'm going to have some kind of ruling on whether I agree with something or not. Giving some space for, I don't know, I'm going to think about this, and I'm also going to walk away from being just barraged with information all the time. Yeah. I mean, you talk a bit about like emotional work too. Like I love the part about fighting online because um, I had to stop doing that. Uh, and like the, also the stuff about, so like, can you talk about that and also the, the sort of like act activism aspect and fighting online, like the burnout there and like yeah. how, how people feel like if they're not doing that, or if you, you are not doing all the activism all the time, you're somehow like a deficient person guilt, yeah. it's such guilt. It's guilt and it's like a sense of urgency that it makes sense because the world at times is literally on fire. So nobody is a bad person for getting that message, but we have it so ingrained in us that if you're not doing a lot of work that other people can see, you're not doing enough. And um, so I really push back against that in the book and kind of remind people that you, you as an individual actually cannot save the world. And you actually do sometimes have to even find space for grief and kind of mourning some of the things that are, you know, trauma to the environment, trauma that has happened to people who have been oppressed in this country. And that doesn't mean giving up, but that just means kind of accepting, okay, I am small and this is really big and scary. So what are the small things that I can do to help people in my community that I can really feel that sense of reward and that I'm making a difference? Because if we're just constantly scrambling to do every call to action and sharing every infographic on Instagram or whatever, we're again, like really emotionally flooding ourselves and we're going to burn out. And um, that's not a sustainable way to do anything. And it often leads us to doing things that are not even actually helping, right? So like the, the blackout squares on Instagram that were really popular um, during the summer and that a lot of Black Lives Matter activists were really critical of, of like, this is just you looking for something to do. Um, it's not you actually, and it's actually you kind of clogging up people's feet with nothingness instead of mm -hmm. sharing information. So mm -hmm. just kind of um, resisting that sense to just always urgently fix something and kind of giving yourself permission to slow things down. And I think when it comes to fighting online, it's 
it's important to engage with people you disagree with if you have when you have the space and capacity for it or if you're the person who's more privileged in the interaction right mm-hmm. so like as a white person i think it's important for me to engage with other white people about you know our stuff but it doesn't help if i'm just like sanctimoniously arguing with people in a comment section it's way better for me to determine okay who's one person that i can have one private conversation with this week about stuff we're both trying to figure out and that we're both mm-hmm. kind of growing on and the when i remember to do that and kind of slow down in that way it's so much more rewarding I actually make a difference. I learn something and get better in, in mm-hmm. you know, the ways I'm trying to trying to make the world better. And and that stuff's just way more human and more sustainable in the long run too. Yeah. I mean, if you feel hopeless about stuff, try to find like a local council or like a local group or I I, I think that you're right. Like it really just hit me just now when you were talking about slowing down. I think that progress in our minds needs to happen so fast online and like by attacking certain people. And I think like what actually works is like, I'm sorry to say, but it's going to take a while. It's long-term it's political. Like it's, that's like such a good way to frame it. I hope that that helps our audience a little. Cause it really just like snapped my brain for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to unlearn. Cause again, there are emergencies and horrifying situations every day. But it is like people have a need to feel helpful and useful. And that's part of why we don't have to worry about people being lazy. People do want to help others. So if you can find a way to to meet that emotional need that you have and recognize that it is a need by really identifying who's someone in my neighborhood that needs help. Mm -hmm. What's a conversation that I know I do have the emotional capacity for, you know, so so, you know, versus the things that are really traumatizing for me where I'm not going to be the most helpful person because it's too like triggering or I'm just too freaked out or whatever it is. And we touched on this a little bit, but can we get into more of how important it is to understand a person's full context for why they're behaving the way that they're behaving? And and how do we go about learning people's context? We never know everything about a person's context, right? But the more we... um, appreciate uh, people with kind of a spirit of compassion, the more we learn, the more they open up to us about what they're going through. So for example, as a professor, if I'm someone who in situations where it's appropriate, because I'm a psychology professor, mention kind of my own experiences with mental health stigma in a way of just saying, this is real. It's true that even within psychology, people say stigmatizing things about depression or autism or anxiety or whatever it is. Um, And here's how it still affects and inhibits people, let's say, from seeking out therapy. Mm-hmm. When I do that, then I am more likely to have students come up to me and say, hey, actually, the reason why I've been skipping your class is because I have social anxiety. And mm-hmm. I don't normally tell my professors that because I'm afraid they're going to think I'm a snowflake. Um, and, and that's a real interaction that I've had happen so many times. So when you do your best to kind of put a non-judgmental air, air into the world, people will naturally kind of start telling you more about what's getting in your way. But I think also we have to kind of model that and encourage that in other people. So if I hear someone that I'm working with complaining about someone being lazy or disappointing them, just kind of modeling like, oh, um, maybe this is what's going on with them. Or have you tried, you know, checking in with them in this way instead of kind of just assuming right out the bat that it's because they don't care about your class or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Um, That can really help. And Outside of classroom environments, I think just thinking about and and learning more about how things like systemic racism, sexism, how hard it is to get uh, social welfare benefits in this country, those systems, how grueling they are and reading the perspectives of people who have to grapple with them 
helps us, I think, realize nobody is operating at this 100% capacity. We're all really torn in a million directions right now. And so what can I do to like help people get barriers out of their way, or at least just be more patient when someone Mm -hmm. is acting in a non-ideal way, because that's like all of us. Or just ask what's up. (laughs) Right. Yeah. If it's an appropriate like relationship where you can do that, just ask what's up. I wouldn't want like managers asking their like employees too much like invasively, but like friends, family, anyone where you've built up that trust, like. Or even just accepting that you probably don't know the full picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like maybe you you won't know the full picture, but like you know, if someone is starting to behave strangely, or if you can see that someone feels off, like giving people the benefit of the doubt. I had this interesting interaction where I was walking with my niece, who's like six, and I she asked why a dog was wearing like a muzzle. I was coming from a point of view of like I don't want her to be afraid of dogs, mm. so I was like sometimes dogs wear them because they like to eat things on the ground that are bad for them which is true. That's why like some dogs wear muzzles or like, you know, or sometimes they get too excited, you know, and I went to the other reasons. And my brother-in-law was like, oh, I always thought it was just because they were aggressive dogs, Mm. you know, but Uh it's like giving people that there is so many more contexts for the same situation. I think like, it's really like a brain exercise, almost like you talked about, like sitting back and being like, okay, what could be the other reasons that got us from point A to point B? Um, other than like the ones that that are the most like stereotypical stereotypical and the most judgmental and the most you know like like with like as you say like attaching morals to it kind of thing people like truly think that they know everything about you and they like go so quickly to like assumptions or like projecting onto you I feel like oftentimes like I'm shouting into the void about this kind of thing. We are shouting quite often. (laughs) Well, I am shouting, but not into the void. But about this, it feels like you're shouting into the void. It's hard, yeah. And it does come down to us doing too much too fast, right? Like our first reactions to things usually are, especially in American culture, the like fundamental attribution error, which is just that thing where you assume someone's doing something because of who they are as a person versus Mm -hmm. their situation. That's like the knee jerk response. And it's people aren't bad for doing that. That's how most people's brains work. But it's finding the time to free up and slow down and go, okay, I actually don't know this person. I'm attaching a bunch of stuff to them based on times when I've been burned in the past um, and oversimplifying who they are. And I actually don't know who they are um, and why they're doing what they're doing. And people usually do things that make sense from where they're sitting. Can we talk a little bit about? like executive functioning and how that's something that is kind of potentially like genetic and in your brain, but how it can be really different for different people. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's so many layers to it, but so basically for anyone who doesn't know, executive functioning are like kind of the skills that are involved in planning and dividing up and kind of executing a task, which is why it's called that. So a lot of things that we take for granted as really simple, um, like, I don't know, doing your laundry actually requires a ton of different executive functioning skills because you kind of have to sequence, okay, um, I need to like clean through all of my like closet and figure out what actually needs to get washed and what doesn't. And maybe I need to empty out the dryer and fold stuff and put it away. There's all these little steps and like physical actions and decisions you have to make to even do something that we consider pretty 
simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times if you're depressed or you have ADHD or you have PTSD or autism or any number of other things, that sequencing can really easily get disrupted. And I think we all know that right now during COVID times, especially everybody's executive functioning is kind of uh, squashed. And so we find it harder to do things like, you know, plan out a meal and cook it and things like Mm -hmm. that. And a lot of stuff that we call laziness, especially around the house is a person having super, super depleted executive functioning and needing help getting that stuff sequenced and completed. But it's hard. People get so uh, frustrated and it's like really sad sometimes when people get frustrated with someone for not thinking or functioning the exact same way they do. Because I think there's a lot of um, glorification of overcoming, mm-hmm. right? Like I wanted to talk about like the the narratives of like the normalization or glorification of like overcoming or of like physical uh, exhaustion or, you know, how you see sort of like in the, in her documentary, like Lady Gaga, like going into an ice bath and like be, you're like, wow, what a great artist. She's in so much pain. Um, like, can you, cause you talk about that in the book too. How do we get out from under that? <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I don't know. We would, I feel like we would almost need a whole lifetime of media message that messages that were about people working together and taking breaks because it is so ingrained mm-hmm. in our, in, in like American national mythology. And then also all of our media is like the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it doesn't have to be that way, but we're taught that that's like how you tell a story mm-hmm. is the hero's journey of somebody working really hard, suffering, um, and struggling on their own. Um, and that's not actually how anybody's life works. Mm-hmm. And, um, just calling into question those myths whenever we see them, I think is a really important thing. Like the Lady Gaga example is great. Another one that comes up a lot is like, oh, look, this kid uh, raised enough money to go to a private school by like selling cans that he like gathered up and recycled. And it's like, why are we, you know, mm-hmm. valorizing that somebody was in that situation where they had to do that? Or like, mm-hmm. you know, those news articles that are like, this old man walked to work two miles every day and then his coworkers saved up their vacation days and send them on a vacation. And it's like, okay. Um, That's actually pay him enough, yeah. him enough so he can get a car. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And that, that requires us to like question the systems that aren't taking care of people and saying, mm-hmm. we actually need to, as a society, you know, whatever it is, universal basic income, universal healthcare, whatever the things are that we want to advocate for, that'll make it so that people don't have to be superhuman to mm-hmm. live. Also, like it with someone like Gaga, I think the idea is like, oh, she's doing all this herself. But I bet she would even tell you, like, if she's got a manager, she's got people working for her. She's got like, I think the 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 public the myth in like publications is like this person's doing it by themselves. And often the truth is that they're not even like um, I was reading some book about writing and the guy was like, uh, uh, you, you might think that you can't write a book because you have a child, but, uh, like Tolstoy had, uh, 12 children and he wrote books or whatever. And my, my roommate was like, what about Tolstoy's wife? <laughs> like yeah. who you think, I think she was probably caring for those kids. And like, that's like the narrative that is invisible. Yeah. I think she even like licked his stamps for him. It's like always the like, retort <gasps> that people have. like she like edited for him. She like translated stuff. She did all this mm-hmm. stuff for him. I think it was Tolstoy. Yeah. There's so much support. Um, I have a, a friend once who talked about how, so star athletes, star performers, they have a whole team of physical therapists, trainers, 
people mm-hmm. taking care of their bodies and minds. And really, and, and this person was a social worker and they were saying every social worker should have that. Like they're mm-hmm. going through something yeah. that's equally as like athletically demanding and uh, they need a whole support team to do that too. So yeah, we, we valorize the people who suffer. And honestly, it is horrible that people suffer even when they're making that much money. Like we shouldn't celebrate, you know, people's bodies breaking down for their work even when they're rich either. But mm-hmm. um, there's so many people doing that who don't have that kind of support and they really deserve it too. And I think also like that there's so much um, judgment on stay at home spouses and parents uh, and like, oh, so you don't work. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I think there's been some reframing of like, no, they are doing work. They're just not necessarily being financially compensated for it. But in a way they are because they're allowing their partner to make the money that they need, to, you know? And so I think it, it's really helpful to view people more as partnerships and kind of like families as almost like small businesses or, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's like, you're all contributing, you're all doing what needs to be done so that the money can be transferred into the unit, you know? Just if we only had more systems in place so that it was like, if that's what you're doing for your family, that you got credit for that on your resume mm-hmm. or like in mm-hmm. terms of like government benefits, then we could actually start kind of making that so that it wouldn't be such a sometimes unempowering choice that a person has to make or like they lose out in certain ways. Yeah. Um, That unemployed is a, is a bad word too. When like, especially during COVID my, the two people I live with were like, well, we don't want to take unemployment. Like it, and they, cause they thought it would, it put like a stigma on them or like, I don't need it or whatever. And I'm like, take the government's money. Like what? But we've like tricked ourselves into being like unemployed is like a dirty word. But it's like, you know, also you describe in the book, people describing themselves as their job when like in reality, like you're a daughter, maybe you're, you are, your hobby is surfing. Maybe, you you know, like the ways in which we define ourselves is like so often rewarded by being through work. Yeah. It's like the only thing we really have as like a, as a grounding touchstone. And that can be so existentially lonely especially mm-hmm. if you're in a job that isn't rewarding or a job that's like it's never going to love you back like you could always lose it or get burned by it so mm-hmm. finding ways to think more about like what do I actually care about in life what actually makes me feel alive and how can I give myself more space for that which is really hard I want to ask one one more question because it was something that also jarred me uh when you talk about learning to disappoint people and yeah. like you, the, the there's like a part that's like disappoint a new like disappoint someone on just not on purpose but you know what I mean just to like feel it Mm -hmm. (laughs) can you explain that because I think like our listeners would be like what yeah this is something that I kind of um I talk about kind of reading between the lines and something that my my own therapist said to me once um because we were you know talking about how even though I write about this stuff I'm still really afraid to like say no to people and Mm -hmm. and look lazy and I talk in the book about how hating laziness really gets in the way of us being able to actually consent to Mm -hmm. things. Like if we assume that saying yes and doing something is morally superior to saying no, that is always going to give us a distorted relationship to consent in all Mm -hmm. kinds of realms of life, because it gives us the default that you have to have a good reason to say no. You have to prove you deserve to say no, instead of no being equally as valid as yes. So for me, you know, I, I write about this stuff because I have these problems um, and I have this stuff really ingrained. So I decided like, okay, I'm going to just set out with a goal every week of like, 
who am I going to disappoint this week? Cause I need to start getting comfortable with it. Um, so, you know, if I have, uh, cause I'm on all these like academic committees or whatever, if somebody emails me and says like, can I count on you to do X, Y, Z thing that I never said I was going to do then I kind of just a light bulb goes off in my mind of like, I found the person I'm supposed to disappoint this week. <laughs> you know? Here's someone who's trying to kind of ma- subtly manipulate me. And, you know, they're not a bad person. It's just kind of how they got that ingrained in them or whatever. But just looking for what are unfair expectations that are being put on me and what is a way I can practice disappointing someone mm-hmm. is really kind of, it feels like picking a scab. It's like kind of satisfying to get this to. For people who feel like they do struggle with laziness, right? Because a lot of people will self-identify as lazy or like they have a lot of issues with procrastination. You kind of talk about needing to remove the barriers to action. And like, how do we go about doing that? How do we kind of overcome what is getting in our own way? Sure. So I think for a lot of people, the first step is first kind of figuring out who put you in a position where you believe that you're lazy. Because Mm -hmm. when I talk about this book with people, people never say like, oh, what about my lazy husband? Or what about my lazy coworker? They always say, sure, sure, sure. All that stuff might be true, but I'm lazy. I know deep down I'm really lazy. And Mm -hmm. it so often comes down to parents who told them that, teachers who told them that, bosses and mentors who really let them down. Like, look at who really failed you and how the world kind of failed you and, and see if maybe you're the one that's not actually a failure. Maybe you were failed. And then it, if there is something that's really important for you that you really wish you had time to do that you're not getting done, I think that pretty much always means you have to find something else to let drop. My -hmm. kind of baseline assumption in this book is everybody is currently doing too much. You are, you're all your time is already accounted for. You Mm -hmm. might be beating yourself up for how you're spending your time, but you are doing things with every minute of your day, including like sitting and staring off to the wall. Maybe you needed to just like stare at the wall for a while or something like that, you know? If you really value something, what can you leave behind to make it possible for you to do that thing? Mm-hmm. And it varies a lot from person to person who has the ability to make those kind of hard decisions of what they're going to walk away from. You know, it's way easier for me as someone who, you know, I can set my own schedule somewhat. I don't have kids, you know, like I have more flexibility than other people. So I don't want to detract from that. But I think ultimately people need to accept that they're doing too much and look for people they can disappoint, things they can let go of so yeah. that then they can live the way they actually want to live. Well, that's what you were talking about where you're like, you know, you assume that you have to drive 45 minutes to see your friend. But what if you just say one time, hey, can you come to me? Or like, you know, you you always do something for someone and you're like, this week I'm not going to. If It hurts. It feels bad. But there's your time. Yeah. Yeah. Just not taking that stuff for granted and getting comfortable with like, okay, I might saying no or trying to change out of this cycle is going to make me feel really guilty at first, but I'm actually not doing anything wrong. So that's Mm -hmm. like, let's do the thing, get used to that feeling and realize that, Hey, the people that love me are going to be okay with me actually advocating for myself. Like Mm -hmm. they want that actually. I feel really weird asking you this and you can absolutely say no, but would you like to play a game show? No, I think I think I'm down. You're down? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so hypotheticals is a game show uh, where you and Gabby are my contestants. I give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you have. And then um, you tell me what you would do in those situations. <laughs> Our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Okay. 
Every year, your spouse of eight years insists on going on a cruise during the winter holidays. During one cruise, you catch them making out with a waiter. And when you confront them about it, they are confused because everyone knows regular rules do not apply in international waters. Would you stay with this cheater? I mean, I don't think the maritime law excuses it at all. I think, you know, like... It's almost like that logic makes it worse than if it was just like, oh, I screwed up. Like if someone was just like, because I'm, I'm in, a, I've been in the relationship I'm in for like ten plus years, so like I feel like I'm at a place now where I'm like, yeah, stuff's gonna happen. Like people make mistakes. We go, we're on a journey, you know. But like that weird maritime law rationalization would be a big like, no for me. I yeah, think. because then they're just trying to gaslight you. No, they truly believe this. They truly thought that regular rules do not apply on the open sea. How did they get? But the, that's like laws of like crime. That's not <laughs> laws of cheating. They were under the assumption that it was. <laughs> so then are you allowed to make out with a waiter? Yeah. All right, I won't leave. I'll stay. <laughs> I mean, hmm, if they were someone who it was just like, wow, you're just like very earnest and you have some like, kind of weird ideas of how the world works, which that can be very, very lovable. Um, and I would date someone like that. Uh, then, you know, maybe it would be an opportunity. Maybe it'd be like, okay, Rumspringa cruise. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves a winter cruise Rumspringa. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they think it is. That's why they insist you go every year. Jesus oh. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so verdict, stay with this cheater and maybe go on more cruises is there someone hot on the cruise at the end of the day if there's someone i want to make out with on the cruise then i'll be like okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly that, i'll accept that answer that's a good answer okay our next game are you a terrible parent your child 16 wants to get married to their partner 18 and says that if you do not sign off on the marriage they will get emancipated and never speak to you again so you let your 16-year-old get married only for them to immediately get divorced. Are you a terrible parent? <sighs> is it hard to get emancipated? I feel like it is. Yeah, but they are going to try. But what if but what are the odds that they succeed? 70%. Hmm, those are good odds. This 16 a, and 18? Is that yeah. what you said? Yeah, your kid is 16. This is so hard. I think it's old enough that you, like, let them make their own mistakes. I don't know. Like, I don't think that's that bad. Like To let your 16-year-old get married? This is so hard because also, yeah. like, what is the age of consent where I live? It's allowed. Oh, it's hard because you can, you can call the police and say that it's a legal relationship, but then also... Uh, they might be able to get off because of Romeo and Juliet laws. Ugh, okay, so your very... answer would be to try to get their partner thrown in jail? Absolutely. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm saying don't do that. Um, but the laws are so... I just really am realizing that the laws are, uh, are tricky. Did you guys know the legal system is complicated? Oh, my God. <laughs> I think, okay, so, all right. So it's either they're going to get emancipated and then get married, or I give like parental consent for mm -hmm, them to get yeah. married. So like, it's better in the long run if they're going to make a decision that might be dangerous for them or ill-advised, like at least they'll still be in contact with me when they need help. 
That's true. Versus and isolated. that's the right answer. This one had a clear, correct answer. Oh, wow. Devin figured it out. Wow. I was trying to, oh man, I was going through the law books. I was sitting in the library doing some <laughs> Pelican briefing, but nope, you're, uh, you just went a uh, good parent-child relationship with it. Sometimes the simple answer is the right answer. Laziness does not exist. <laughs> okay. Our final game. Are they an alien or just rude? Okay. While at a small dinner party, you go to use the hall bathroom and find one of the guests peeing on the toilet with the door open. You gasp in surprise and then try to close the door, but they shout, leave it open. I hate the smell of my own urine. Are they an alien or just rude? How well do you know this person? <laughs> you met them that night at the small dinner party. Devin? be delighted because <laughs> I love those little moments where you just meet you know just little characters in life and when I'm home alone I pee with the door open because it just feels so free oh, I don't yeah. know why so I feel like I even though it is rude I guess they're an alien and they're rude and mm. I think they're cool can I say that <laughs> but they're think- cool rude alien <laughs> yeah. yeah they're interesting to me Well, you are a social psychologist. So I think most people don't like the smell of their urine. So I'm going to say that that's not an alien feature. It's a human feature. So I'm going to say that they're just rude. Actually, they're an alien with very stinky urine. (laughs) They come from the planet Asparagus. Yeah. It's disgusting. That's disgusting. (laughs) I'm sorry. Wow. Okay. Well, I like that. I like that your response was like an immediate cool fascination. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just like characters, you know, like yeah, I would not feel hurt or violated by the experience. So then it's like, wow, okay. Life is a tapestry. <laughs> My friend was working as a wardrobe person for a very famous pop star and they were talking and they were just like having a conversation, having a conversation. And then the pop star, like in the middle of the conversation, like went into the bathroom door open and pooped while they were still talking oh and then and then like and didn't acknowledge it wow oh i mean you're gonna have to tell me who that pop star was i will i will i'm sure you like have people's hands all over you all the time when you're like a pop star so maybe like you just this was pre-covid yeah right yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's good this was so fun and illuminating and helpful where can people find out more about you and your upcoming book and everything you're up to uh, yeah. So on like all the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff, um, I'm at Dr. Devin Price. That's D-E-V-O-N-P-R-I-C-E. And then I post a lot of my writing on devinprice.medium.com. Amazing. Mm. Thank you so much. This was so great. Yeah, yeah thank you. Fun. Thanks for having me. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about found family. Back to just between us. It's time for topics. X X X X X baby baby. Mm-hmm. So this week I picked one of your favorite topics: mm-hmm. found family. Yeah, yeah. So this is often equated with um, queer people and and called chosen family um, because a lot of times uh, in the past and also today. Uh, queer and trans people are uh, disowned or kicked out by their biological families. Um, and so they find, you know, 
a chosen family among other queer people. Um, And like most literally, I would say is like in the 80s and 90s, the um, house mothers and in New York City or in other cities where it was like the voguing scene and the ballroom scene and how you would have like a house, like a literally like someone you would call mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see this in the TV show Pose nowadays. But so that's where like some of the stuff comes from, where like you hear sometimes like queer people calling people mother. That's like a very little interpretation of having a new family um, and having people who are just as close to you as siblings or just as close to you as a biological family. I think we put too much emphasis on biological family. So like mm-hmm. often, at least I'm speaking specifically for queer and trans people, where your your biological family is abusive or doesn't get you or like is just you feel this overwhelming pressure to make it work with them in mm-hmm. a way that is oftentimes like unhealthy and dangerous for you, where like people will go, but she's your mother or, you know, but she's your father. But it's like, Yes, but we have to go on how they're treating you. Mm -hmm. And I have a tough time with with that because I think my relationship to my family has ebbed and flowed, certainly. And now I feel grateful to to have them in my life, but it's it's complicated. And I also think that outside of the the queer and trans community, Mm -hmm. there's also with people getting married later in life. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that, like, especially in people's 20s and people moving away from maybe where their families are, mm-hmm. like that, that friends sort of become like the surrogate found family mm-hmm. um, and provide the sort of like emotional support that you would normally get from a biological family. And I think that that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's nice because you can, I mean, I think it used to be that you got married and you created your own family and that Mm -hmm. was how you like had a found family. But I think like with relationship models being so different, oftentimes, yeah. I mean, I would say even like the house that I live in, which is like me and Mal and Drew Mm -hmm. and even Cheyenne, my sister who lives like five minutes away and comes over, our little quarantine pod, I think is like oftentimes feels like a family. That's wonderful. It feels like, you know, definitely like me and me and Mal are the parents. (laughs) (laughs) And then like we joke that like Cheyenne and Drew are like our teenage daughters. I think that there's also this sense of like, if you are dealt a bad family, then you will never have family in your life. Mm -hmm. But like the more that people are familiar with this idea and the more that it's like openly accepted and given the same weight, it's like kind of beautiful because it means that like yes it sucks that your biological family isn't what you want but it doesn't mean that you will never have the family you want it just means you maybe have to make it for yourself I think um that there's something really beautiful to trusting each other enough to be a family Mm because oftentimes you you were like well I can only trust my family because they've been there the longest they've been there at you know I, I unconditional know. love there yeah. in a way that you don't expect in friendships. Yeah, because it's like, you know, my my sister and I will always be sisters. Mm-hmm. If you stop being friends with someone, it's like a little bit of a different thing. You can go through phases like me and Cheyenne didn't always like each other, but we didn't lose touch because we were sisters mm-hmm. and we like figured it out. 
So I think it's hard for me to have that same sort of trust for people that uh, are just friends, mm-hmm. but I'm learning how to. And it's like really beautiful to to be vulnerable that way. It's not going to always work out, but like to be vulnerable in a way that like, you know, you can be vulnerable with because this person, even though they're not biologically related to you, is your family. Yeah. And like uh, being comfortable asking for things that normally you uh, only ask a family member. That's huge. I haven't been in L.A. in like a long time. And so like Rachel is like, you know, the only person there who I feel like comfortable enough to be like, can you just go to my apartment and check my mail and maybe turn my car on and like do the Mm -hmm. sorts of things Mm -hmm. that I associate, like what I would ask like my parents to do to help Mm -hmm. me out, you know, but like we've been friends for long enough. And I realizing that that's like so amazing that I, I have a person in my life who I'm not related to by blood, who I can ask to like do those things for me that I wouldn't feel comfortable pretty much asking like anyone else to do. It's really vulnerable. It's really vulnerable to ask someone for help. It's Mm -hmm. incredibly vulnerable. And you, and like the way that I ask Cheyenne for things where I'll just be like, please just fucking do it. Like you don't (laughs) talk to other people that way. Or you don't have the same expectations. But as we've talked about in the past a lot, like, you know, it's the give and take, right? And like, I know that like, if the roles were reversed, that I would do those things for her. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the thing with with the found family is sometimes it's hard because you really need the history. You Mm -hmm. need like it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. It's over year, years, year, you know, like and then before you know it, you're suddenly like, oh, these people are my family, you know. And you're allowed to be annoyed with family, too. Mm -hmm. Like if they're your friends, if someone's annoyed with you, but you love each other and trust each other and, and feel like your family, then like they're annoyed with you and they'll get over it or you'll talk it out or mm-hmm. whatever. Like, but I think we put too much emphasis on the blood relation. And and I think you should talk it out even when you're blood related, because I think sometimes people are just like, whatever, like my brother's pissed and like he'll just be pissed. And it's like, why don't you just not take it for granted? Mm-hmm. Like, why don't you talk to each other and treat each other? As though it's not just a given because you're siblings. Yeah. Put in the same work you would put in with a friendship. Yeah. Um, Cheyenne has started now like coming to me with still be like, this hurt my feelings or whatever. And I'll be like, wow. Okay. That's She awesome. told us we're not allowed to call her scary anymore. <laughs> she said it hurts her feelings when we say that she's scary. And she's like, nobody's going to ever date me if you keep calling me scary. So... Oh. <laughs> And I didn't even know. I had no idea that that would hurt her feelings. And so I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. But like, you know, with siblings, it's like you're not always whatever. But like with, you know, Drew and I, it's like as friends, you do like you would say, hey, you know, you just don't take anyone for granted. And and with friendships, like let them know, too. Like if you feel like someone you're friends with is family. I was going to say that. Tell them. Tell them. Yeah. Tell them you love them. Start using those words. Mm -hmm. Tell them you love them. Tell them that they feel like family to you. Tell them you would do any, you know, you would, you would do anything within reason for them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, don't assume that they know. Right. Because they might have things that they like need help with and they feel weird asking. Right. But like, I I think you should sit them down and say like, hey man, if you ever need anything, like I'm here. Or like, you don't want to feel like a burden, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. like, no, please. Like if you're crying, like tell me if you feel sad, tell me like if you need me to to get your mail, like let me know. And to say like I 
I view you in a different way mm-hmm. than I view other friends. Like mm-hmm. the connection that we have is different. You can rely on me in a different way. I yeah. rely on you in a different way and, and mm-hmm. really like recognize and celebrate that bond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting with, with COVID, like our pod becoming a family mm-hmm. is like very, a very interesting thing. And I think like I'm pretty protective of friends sometimes. Like there's other friends that we've kind of like narrowed down who like our little group is and um, even for like outside distance hangs and like those people, like I'm very protective. I remember one time, like one of their families was being like rude to them. And I was like, well, it's a good thing I'm your mother now. Like, (laughs) or not rude. I don't want to understate it. They were being very abusive. And I was like, well, I'm your mom now and tell your real and tell your mom to go away. And I'm your mom. And like, (laughs) I was joking, but also like, you feel protective and you feel like a gender neutral mother. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, want to come on in and share your thoughts? Yeah, I think found families are interesting. Um, like I have an older sister that has no like biological relationship to me. She just mm-hmm. like came along when she was in college, she um, like just got really close. My mom, um, we're in the same sorority and my mom was like the advisor for the sorority and she just became really close for to my family. And this is when I was in high school. And so like at this point, like she's my sister, you can't say anything different. Like my parents, mm-hmm. uh, she's their daughter and people like get confused sometimes. And they're like, I think I thought you were the oldest, like I am the oldest, like in my family, but she's also my sister. I love that. Have a little creativity, like have and like be open and have Mm -hmm. a little like my my friend Danny has a similar thing in high school. His older sister's best friend was like going into foster care and the family took her in and she moved in with them. And he's like, that's my sister. And Mm -hmm. he'll like call her his sister. And like that's like we we really do put too much emphasis on on blood. And like, I think I think if we were more open about that stuff, more people would have the support they need. Mm-hmm. And not feel like their life is doomed to never have that support. Exactly. Yeah. If their biological family isn't isn't filling that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can you can I mean, I one thing I will say is try not to replicate the same dynamics. I think like often Drew plays mediator in her real family. And then with me and Mal, we'll sometimes step into the mediator role. And we have had to a little bit be like, this isn't your job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So just in your found family, watch out for replicating um, poor dynamics from your birth family, please. Yeah. (laughs) Watch out for yourself. Take care Mm -hmm. of yourself. You get to you get to recreate your roles, you know. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the creativity of your mom being Melissa being like, this is my daughter now. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Loving, creative. Exactly. Yeah. The openness of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like one time when we were in, I was, was in college and then she was in grad school and somebody was like, you guys hang out so much. People think you're sisters. You're like, we are sisters. Like, <laughs> 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 leave us alone. Yeah. And then, like I had a friend who's like, that's weird. Cause like my dad gave her away at her wedding. Like he was the oh, one that wow. walked her down the aisle, even though her biological father was there. And one of my friends, like I was just telling her that my dad was walking um, my sister down the aisle. And one of my friends was like, that's weird. And I was like, why? Why is mm-hmm. that weird? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's really beautiful. Don't feel guilty if you're closer to the people that make you feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do we rate this episode? This 
This bad boy. I rate it uh, 12 out of 11 disappointments. That was actually going to be like similar. I was going to say purposeful disappointments. So that was my favorite thing in that book. Yeah, that's great. Disappoint one person a week, baby. Yeah, I mean, I've I've done my share this week, so (laughs) understand. And that's something that I've had to work on in the last few weeks I would say that I have to start <laughs> disappointing people because I can't function if I don't yeah so. yeah well you have so you juggle so many things yeah I don't know how you do it um getting <laughs> help <it's>, soon oh, <laughs> more help, I should say more help but it's interesting to like I think you Melissa have a a very good boundaries in the sense of like you know it, it can be frustrating for people you know sometimes like to be like we can't get in touch but also like you're not you don't seem stressed in terms of like I need to be on your schedule Mm -hmm. like it seems like you feel mostly okay quote unquote disappointing people is that true newly this is newly true it was not I would not say like if you would have asked me that a month ago then that wouldn't have been the case Wow. Look at that growth. Yes. Wow. That's so exciting. We love to see it. I love to feel it. (laughs) (laughs) Less apologizing, more disappointing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Purposeful disappointing. Purposeful. Thank you so much to Devin Price for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. And follow us at JBU Podcast on Instagram and me and Allison on Instagram at Allison Raskin and at Gabby Road. It's very good content. Yes, and shout out to our Discord, the Gabby Dunn Discord and the Allison Raskin Discord and Allison's Patreon. Goodbye. <laughs> Forever. <laughs>